This episode is brought to you by Progressive. Most of you aren't just listening right now. You're driving, cleaning, and even exercising. But what if you could be saving money by switching to Progressive? Drivers who save by switching save nearly $750 on average, and auto customers qualify for an average of seven discounts. Multitask right now. Quote today at Progressive.com. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. National average 12-month savings of $744 by new customers surveyed who saved with Progressive between June 2022 and May 2023. Potential savings will vary. Discounts not available in all states and situations. Hello and welcome to Little Gold Men, the award season podcast from Vanity Fair. It's such an honor to present this next award. And here are the nominees. And... The Oscar goes to... And the Oscar goes to... And I can't deny the fact that you like me right now. You like me. I'm the king of the world. There's a mistake. Moonlight, you guys won Best Picture. I am Katie Rich. I'm here with Richard Lawson. Hello. And fresh from the red carpet or the surprisingly plush indoor uh, carpet at the SAG Awards, uh, Rebecca Ford. Hello. And David Canfield. Hello. We are recording on a Monday, the day after the SAG Awards, the first in-person award show of this award season. And truly, it feels like the first in years, even though the Emmys were not that long ago. But it was a a true return to forum, as the announcer said in the very beginning, award season is back. So we're going to talk about the SAG Awards. We're also going to talk about the change to this year's Oscar broadcast that was announced last week after we had already recorded, in which they plan to have eight of the categories awarded before the ceremony starts and some predictable backlash has resulted from there. And then at the end of the episode, we'll hear from David Canfield and his interview with Jesse Plemons, who was at the SAG Awards alongside Kirsten Dunst and is an Oscar nominee and Best Supporting Actor. We also want to remind those of you who are joining us for award season this extremely exciting time of year. If you can please rate and review us on Apple Podcasts or Spotify or share the podcast with another Hollywood-obsessed friend or colleague. You guys know how great this show is. Uh, you've really spread the word over the years, and we're always grateful to, to it. This is a great time of year for us to find new listeners, to really show people what we're all about. So if you like the show, share it and help people find it, too. So let's get into the SAG Awards. Um, Rebecca, you really did the lion's share of the tweeting from In the Room and then also the uh, COVID testing line outside, which is the the real glamour of the evening. Um, and I think that you kept saying what I kept thinking about watching this, which was like, it is both weird and amazing to be back to doing this. So how did it feel? Definitely mixed emotions. Once you were, were through the security check, the COVID test, the line once you actually got to the red carpet and into the main room everyone took their masks off so you could almost forget that you know we were still in this pandemic and what we had just sort of been through in the last few months um and it really felt like the award shows from you know two years ago three years ago Mm -hmm. um and you could really feel that people realized how special that was because you know a month ago this couldn't have happened and um I I really enjoyed being in that room once I got past sort of the awkwardness of being like, 
do we hug or do we just uh, stand awkwardly six feet apart? But what did you decide on? Did you hug or did you stand awkwardly? I didn't do a lot of hugging, but you know, once once you're in the room, you're very close to the people around you. So uh, there was definitely no distance between people, um, especially in the valet line to get out of there at the end of the night. It was super crowded, um, which I think was the most shocking part for me. But it definitely felt pretty wonderful to be back in those rooms, um, despite sort of all the heavy emotions that I think a lot of people were sort of dealing with at the same time. Yeah. David, were the uh, were the stars seemingly as happy to get back to things as you guys were? They very much were. Uh, <laughs> there were tears. There was laughter. It was uh, everyone was giving their greatest performance on the floor. <laughs> um, no, I, I think that the, to Rebecca's point, there was there was a real sense of normalcy in the room, which for this town, this is a, you know, these events are its lifeblood. And and it's, it is partly people catching up with old friends and they're just happen to be much more famous than us, but it's the same principle. And, <laughs> and indeed there, you could see that the whole night on the floor, it kind of felt like the globes without the globes because the structure of the, of the room is so similar to um, the ballroom at the um, Beverly Hilton for the Golden Globes, since we didn't have a globes this year in person, at least. Uh, you had a lot of mingling between commercial breaks. You had everyone just kind of wandering the main floor, including Rebecca and me, even though we weren't seated there. Um, and you had a lot of you, you had the sense that it was like a welcome back party almost. That was that was how it felt between the awards, at least. I mean, Richard, you and I were watching at home on our televisions, but I felt like I could sense that um, that emotion. I mean, the amount of tears and, and speeches, even from Will Smith, um, someone who you think might be more over the whole thing. It, it did feel pretty palpable through the screen, right? Oh, yeah. I mean, <laughs> to paraphrase a very inebriated Michael Keaton, <laughs> um, there was, uh, a, a, you know, that sense of like, oh, sure, it's narcissistic and blah, blah, blah. But and, and that but that sort of like, but who cares? We're so happy to be back here. We're so happy to be kind of celebrating each other. Um, that mood did permeate uh, through the television screen and into, you know, living rooms flung afar. So it was really exciting to watch a show that didn't feel like I was kind of in the defensive crouch or cringing the whole time being like, oh, it's zoomy and comedy, yeah. but at least it's something this felt like, no, this is like what it felt like three years ago. I will say we have now had an Oscars at a train station, a SAG Awards at an airport. Uh, so <laughs> I, I need to know what's completing this trifecta. Did you make your connecting flight, David, afterward? <laughs> thankfully I did because there was no after party. <laughs> it was in the right terminal. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> we did get a uh, question from uh, Lindsay, one of the listeners, about whether this like fully cemented SAGs as a Golden Globes replacement. Um, and David, you were mentioning how the format is so similar to the Golden Globes. Um, I mean, they have film and TV. They have a ton of stars. They pulled off this production really well. Like, not knowing what the Golden Globes will do in the future, it did feel to me like this was a pretty successful audition to be the other one before the Oscars. Just got to have parties after. <laughs> That's all they're missing. <laughs> give, give them time to build another hangar next door to have the parties, I guess. But I wouldn't doubt it. Um, well, let's talk about the winners. And, you know, we, we can talk about the film side for the Oscar race, obviously. But I think the TV awards might have been the most exciting in there. You guys can debate me. But the Squid Game, those two Squid Game uh, wins and not the ensemble prize, which I fully expected to happen. Um, but David and Rebecca, you guys are talking about how the, the gravitational force of the room moved toward the Squid Game table as the night went on. So w what did that feel like watching that happen? 
It was definitely like electricity. I think David and I have both compared it to being in the room when Parasite um, was winning the year it went around because it's not just that everyone seemed genuinely excited for the wins. It's also that after they won, everyone in that room was coming up to them, you know? I mean, um, Sandra Oh and cast of Succession, like everyone during commercial breaks was rushing over to congratulate them and meet them. And I just feel like that sort of welcoming energy just feels so special. And I agree, I think was definitely the most exciting uh, part of the show. Transparently, Rebecca and I were among those to have <laughs> migrated over <laughs> to the Squid Game side of the room after uh, Lee Jung-jae and Jung Ho-young won their acting awards. Uh, and the mood over there was completely uh, euphoric and you couldn't help but get swept up in it. And everyone was kind of eagerly anticipating that ensemble category because suddenly it not only seemed possible, but quite likely. Um, but that was also one of the exciting things about the night was there was a there was a lot of topsy turvy movement in terms of momentum and energy, and so obviously Squid Game lost the ensemble award to Succession, and it kind of got a little muted over there. But then you could see the excitement on the other side of the room, <laughs> and and this and on the Oscar side, which we can get into separately, it was kind of like the first few awards of the night were so. Um, predictable as expected, mm -hmm. uh, at least if you thought Trey Kotzer was going to win, as some people on this podcast did. Um, <laughs> but then at the end, it, it it just completely threw everyone for a loop, and you could really feel that sense of shock in the room. Um, but yeah, as for the Squid Game, it, it was it was almost heartbreaking that it didn't complete the trifecta, um, but... I uh, Don't you feel like after the like the shock wears off, like, they have so much to be proud of? Like, that's yes. still a oh, huge totally. win I, I for think, that I think that I think that... After there was that sort of, uh, oh, we didn't get all three, there was definitely a sense of like, this is, this remains huge. Yeah. Um, speaking of Troy Kotzer and on jumping to the film side. So when, you know, I also was like, oh yeah, Troy Kotzer, he could be the challenger to Cody Smith McPhee. But as I was kind of writing about the supporting actor race for our post, I couldn't really remember why we settled on this, that Troy Kotzer was surging. Was it just that he has been nominated so consistently? Like Cody Smith McPhee and Troy Kotzer are the ones who've made basically every list. Um, or was there something else? And David, I feel like maybe you were the one who predicted this the most that like gave us that sense that Troy Kotzer was surging. Well, I think they were the only two who carried over to the Oscars. So you have mm -hmm. to figure, based on that math, unless you have like a Regina King situation, that that sure. race is a two-man race, which I did, which I do and did believe. Um, and and SAG nominated Coda for ensemble, and SAG likes heartwarming performances with, a, I think, a, a clearer arc in that regard, and 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 something that they can latch onto. They love discoveries. Uh, they like recognizing work that perhaps they haven't recognized before, like a Parasite cast win or um, a Coda win for Ensemble, which we can, of course, get into. Uh, and so I, I think if Troy Kotzer was going to be a true challenger to Cody Smith-McPhee, this was the night he had to prove it. Um, mm -hmm. And I think he did. And right now, as I see it, you have a two-man race with Troy Kotzer ahead, but I don't believe it's over. I think Cody could easily win BAFTA still, for example. But it's definitely a race now. Yeah. Richard, what did you make of the Troy Kotzer win? Um, that felt deterministic to me. I mean, I was just like, well, okay, I think that's going to repeat, you know. Um, mm -hmm. uh, and I think it's not just because um, it's history making, but because it's a great performance and people really love that movie as evidenced by its many nominations. And yeah, that feels like a really nice story and also more in line with traditionally 
how the actor categories go, which is an older person who, you know, is kind of getting a career stamp. Um, it's it's pretty rare for someone young like Cody Smith to win in an actor category. So I don't know. I, I'm putting my chips on, on Kotzer now. And he, you know, gave a lovely speech and has been really great throughout this whole um, somewhat stilted award season campaign. So, um, yeah, I, I see a, a pretty clear path for him. Yeah. I feel like once that video hit of him falling out of his chair when he got that nomination, I was like, this is it. He's got it. He's just been like so genuinely excited about all this. I mean, David and I saw him talking with the Squid Game winners after they won on the side. We just happened to be standing nearby and, you know, they were both talking through interpreters. And I was was about to say, so... You, it was you a lot have... of hugging and motioning. <laughs> it was just like hugging and motioning and smiling. Yeah. It was really sweet. And it was really like, great. What other year would we have gotten to see something like that? It, it felt pretty significant. So I agree. I think he's he's going to take the Oscar as well. It's not, can we talk about how great the interpreting for the ASL interpreting specifically was that like you had the camera completely focused on Troy Kotzer and I think he wasn't standing at the microphone. So like Oscar Isaac and Jessica Chastain were just behind him, like not expecting to be in the spotlight for that moment. <laughs> and they did a very good job. But you could tell they were like, oh, no, we're we're on camera. Um, but the interpreter was unseen, but was really seamless. And, you know, the interpreters with the Squid Game, game cast was right there next to them. It was just, you know, I think last year was the first year that they had a ramp up to the Oscar stage because one of the nominees used a wheelchair chair um and all these adaptations that they're making that when they do them you're like oh that was so easy to do this whole time and i hope that things like that continue because it's really um it's just nice to see those kind of boundaries break in front of your eyes yeah it was nice to see that they did that win justice you know that it wasn't an awkwardly handled win for a predominantly deaf cast but that they were actually served by the ceremony and and got to have their moment as they should have so that was if anything a relief to see i think yeah, it was also funny watching um, Zhang Hoyan's uh, interpreter because she like she talked for like a minute before she let the interpreter step in. And I was like, wow, that that job is incredible. I think Rebecca um, and I like gripped each other's hands like, oh, God, <laughs> please stop. <laughs> is she going to remember everything? I know. Um, sorry, to go back to supporting actor for a second, um, we can talk about whether we think Power of the Dog's status as the presumed Oscar frontrunner has changed at all. But if Cody Smith-McPhee is, in fact, maybe falling in second place behind Rakatsur and um, we don't expect any of the other acting contenders to be as strong either, do we still think Power of the Dog is a best picture frontrunner with no real acting winner potential? I think yes. If only because it doesn't feel like, I mean, you could argue Coda is now absolutely in a position to spoil. And I think that's a totally fair assessment. Um, but it's it's not as if Belhast had a good night or is going to win any acting awards. West Side Story seems to be having some momentum, which is, is a little interesting. That one um, clip that went, that one clip that went completely <laughs> everywhere. Um, but we know the acting branch really liked the film because they even nominated Jesse Plemons. I think we know it's winning at least a couple craft categories. I think Ari Wagner is really strong for cinematography. Jane Campion is, of course, an overwhelming frontrunner and director. So it still feels like the only film that has that across-the-board support, but it's definitely, you know, it complicates things uh, when mm-hmm. when the wealth gets spread so much, as we're seeing. Um, yeah, I, I think it's it's still open. I would still bet on power, but it's definitely not like a Nomadland-level lock by any yeah. means. I do I'm think doing- we also should pay attention to, you know, what these studios and awards reps do in the next few weeks like we know there's a ton of power of the dog events happening um that david and i have already got a bunch of invites to and and netflix is gonna obviously put their full force behind um that movie so i don't think we can underestimate the power and 
um, mm-hmm. financial strength of Netflix when it comes to something like that. So, yeah, I, I, I still view it very much as a front runner. Yeah, I'm looking back. I'm doing some like back of the envelope math, looking at the most recent Best Picture winners like Parasite didn't have an acting win. Shape of Water didn't have an acting win. Spotlight, Birdman, like it's definitely not unheard of for yeah. something to be a strong Best best Picture contender without an acting prize. And Birdman's a good example because there was a feeling of how do you not give it to Michael Keaton at the beginning of that season? And even mm-hmm. though he he lost steam, the movie only gained. Yeah, exactly. I mean, although watching his speech last night, I was like, God, he has made an Oscar. Like, he's he's such a great presence uh, giving a speech like that. I'm wishing he won an Oscar so we could have Danny Strong and Warren Littlefield standing in the center of the Dolby Theater, waving their arms, <laughs> desperately trying to find him. Or, or I guess it would be Inuritu <laughs> in that case. But that was that was definitely a highlight of what you didn't see on TV was Rebecca and I scanning the room. I think a 360, like just like looking around uh, when Keaton won lead actor in a limited series and no one could find him (laughs) and there was chaos on the ground you know what the weirdest thing is i was reading this i uh on e-news i think um is that he ran into christine lottie in the bathroom (laughs) she's just there every year some sort of temporal vortex (laughs) i'm bobby finger and i'm Lindsay weber do you ever see a new face or name on your news feeds and say who the heck is that our podcast who weekly is everything you need to know about the celebrities you don't think of us as your cheat code to people magazine your glossary for hollywood a shortcut to understanding pop culture at large for the past eight years, Who Weekly has been telling listeners everything they need to know about the celebrities they don't. The New Yorker says we spelunk deep into the demimonde with convivial delight. That's a direct quote. Mostly, we're going to explain to you Irish star Barry Keoghan's sudden rise to fame and relationship with a not-so-under-the-radar pop princess named Sabrina. The fake wedding Real Housewives star Cynthia Bailey had to promote a limo rental company. And why all the Gen Zers you know are talking about a guy named Benson Boone. Each episode goes deep into the biggest celebrity stories of the moment. And if you're still confused, we even have a weekly call-in episode where we answer the most burning celebrity queries. Who Weekly airs twice weekly with brand new episodes on Tuesdays and Fridays. Listen and follow Who Weekly, an Odyssey podcast, available now for free on the Odyssey app and wherever you get your podcasts. Wondry's new podcast, Blame It on the Fame, dives into one of pop music's greatest controversies. Millie Vanilli set the world on fire, but when their adoring fans learned about the infamous lip-syncing, their downfall was swift and brutal. With exclusive interviews from frontman Fab Morvan and his producers Frank Farian and Ingrid Segeith, this podcast takes a fresh look at the exploitation of two young Black artists. Binge all episodes of Blame It on the Fame, Millie Vanilli, ad-free right now on Wondery Plus. Um, well, Richard, speaking of the acting awards, I think you were among many people who maybe underestimated Jessica Chastain going into this Best Actress who? race that we keep talking about. <laughs> um, we've talked about how it was wide open, but I guess maybe we didn't believe ourselves because I think we all felt this moment of like, whoa, what? And Jessica Chastain was also pretty surprised. Um, so, Richard, how do you think that happened? Well, David and Rebecca were dealing with the, you know, the engine roar of 747s passing over their head. But Katie, you're on the East Coast. So did you hear a piercing shriek and then the sound of breaking glass? Because I jumped out my window. I was like, what just happened? I had a complete existential spiral about my ability to predict anything. Um, I've been sort of trolling you all about Nicole Kidman all season. Um, Yeah, that was shocking because I had said multiple times that like, you know, of the best actress nominees at the Oscars versus the SAGs, like... 
there is a there are four people with a clear path to victory, but Chastain is probably just like happy for the nomination, and now it's like I don't know, <laughs> like I don't, um, and I I yeah I that was um I mean look there is a long history of the SAGs not agreeing with the Oscars on these things, um, including last year, but yeah that was a sign that that performance certainly has stuck at least in actors' minds. I can probably imagine what some of those reasons are you know it's a huge transformation and she she really you know she produced this she really brought it over the finish line after i think about a decade of trying to get the film made Mm -hmm. um you know people know that and they know her and they i think that you know that that certainly didn't uh hurt her you know or it helped her 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 path to victory and and you know like she gave a nice speech and yeah so i think we can't maybe it's a five person race i mean it really does feel like i have no idea who's going to win a Best Actress. Um, I'm banking slightly on Kidman being the McDormand of the year, like who gets it in the end, but like, who the heck knows? Because I had counted Chastain out. So if I was so wrong about that, what else am I wrong about? David, what else is he wrong about? Uh, (laughs) (laughs) I don't, we were all wrong about Chastain. I don't. We were. I don't remember who predicted it for us, but not, we did not predict her. We We did not predict her. I, I don't think Nicole Kidman can win at this point. That is my personal take on on where the race is. And honestly, I would say she's probably the only one who I would rule out. Mm. Um, because we know the Academy didn't love being the Ricardos outside of the actors branch. So if an actors only guild doesn't give it to her, how does a larger voting body that other than the actors didn't care for the movie um, go to bat for her? Um, it, it feels like people like Olivia Coleman where Lost Daughter did do well with the Academy, um, would have more of a lift there of the SAG losers. Um, yeah, I, other than that, I, I have no idea who's winning either. Um, I, I had been to uh, an event earlier this week where I ran into some Searchlight folks who seem pretty high on, on Jessica Chastain and are really about to launch into a full Phase 2 push. Um, and suddenly <laughs> that, that seemed like a very smart thing to do. Yeah. Um, I think that... She's an actor who is really well-liked and respected in the community. I think that that movie has been so hard to gauge because it came out in early September. It wasn't a huge critical hit. It didn't do well at the box office. And all these other contenders arrived thereafter um, with a lot more, you know, buzz as, as we could sense it. But she's popped up everywhere, and she's one of the very, very few, well, except for BAFTA, but none of them did, so <laughs> that's a wash. Um, but she's one of the very few who has been nominated really consistently this season, and it's clear there's a lot of support for her performance, and it's clear that there is going to be a group of that acting branch, at least, that is going to vote for that performance, I think. Um, so just by default, I'm ranking her as my number one choice right now. Very tentatively, very unsure, but it almost feels like one of those, it feels like a year where one of the non-SAG nominees could actually win, um, just given how it's so open. And and I feel like voters don't really know where they're going with this. Yeah. Rebecca, do you feel confident about anything in this race? Not in this category. I do do think if Nicole had won, we would feel pretty secure saying she was going to also take the Oscar. But I feel like this opens it up for any of them. I mean, I feel like Kristen Stewart has a chance to come back and be a part of this conversation despite a very roller coastery season for her and, and Penelope as well. And, and every five minutes, I'm, I'm very sure it's going to be Olivia Coleman. So yeah, I think this is the most wide open I've seen a race in a long time. And, 
And I just don't know what's going to happen. I mean, the eyes of Tammy Faye, like being the Ricardos, right, has not been really honored in any other categories as well. So, I, yeah, I just, I don't know. But I think Chastain does have that powerful narrative about, you know, buying the life rights and, you know, producing this film and trying to make it for years that, you know, like Nicole does not have with being the Ricardo. So it'll be interesting, but I couldn't pick if I had to today. I, I would like to say this as delicately as possible, but there is a quality about Chastain that wants it that, you know, I think from audiences from a distance are like, oh, you know, don't be too sweaty for it. Like, well, whatever. But like, actually, the Academy responds to that historically. Mm-hmm. You know, there, there is a sense if, if you kind of create an aura around you of like, it's time, I'm due, et cetera, et cetera, like, or your people create that for you. I'm thinking of Winslet with the reader, you know, like that can really actually work because a lot of people in the industry, be they actors or not, or in the Academy anyway, can relate to that. This is a striving industry. And I think that there's something about this being a passion project for Chastain, her obvious, well, surprise, which is always a fun reaction to have at these award shows. There was a sort of coronation-esque moment there oh, yeah. that I, I could see the Academy wanting to repeat. And, and you know, for, for an actor who has really, like, produced a lot of her own stuff and, you know, has been, had an interesting career, but a very up-and-down career. And yeah, I, I think there's a nice, neat narrative there that someone like Nicole Kimmon doesn't satisfy. And even in some ways, someone like Kristen Stewart doesn't, because she has always seemed a bit indifferent to all this, whereas Chastain um, clearly is invested in this particular facet of her work. I think she struck a perfect tone um, mm-hmm. last night, for whatever it's worth. I, <laughs> hearing you say that, Richard, just made me think of Glenn Close when she won the Golden Globe for The Wife. And it was... It was exactly that kind of moment, and to the Ooh. point where we were all sure that it would. You're not allowed through. to mention Glenn Close and, in the context of this race. Coleman spoiled, and, and I, then I'll Coleman tell you, spoiled. I, I, I did text the one Academy member I know last night and said, "Okay, explain to me Chastain winning. It's you know, what does it mean for Oscars?" And they wrote back that they would vote for Coleman. So we shall well, see. Coleman mm. is also like the epitome of like not putting in any effort when it comes to awards though because she does not i mean she gives great acceptance speeches but she does not you know campaign yeah campaign at all so that is interesting that she just continues to win and win when but she doesn't have that imperious thing where you know think of like Catherine hepburn never coming to the oscars like when she comes like she's delighted to be there Mm -hmm. so it's almost like it makes you want her more because she's so fun to have around you want to keep inviting her back sag is not her audience so this was a net win for her i genuinely believe that (laughs) I mean, thinking about Chastain's speech, I feel like we're all just dying for that, like, campaign galvanized by a great speech in a room because we really haven't had that. Like, last year's Oscar campaign did not have moments for that. I mean, I guess you could say Andre Day and her Golden Globe speech, like, really helped her get that nomination. Um, But it was, you know, it's still on Zoom. Like, it's just a different thing. And, like, seeing her genuine surprise, seeing the warmth of the room, like, the picture after the show of her with Oscar Isaac and Bradley Cooper and Jeremy Strong, like, it all really helps her, I think. Yeah, and the difference between, you know, Glenn Close was against really beloved performance in a Best Picture nominee. And Jessica Chastain doesn't really have that kind of competition. There's mm-hmm. no Best Picture nominee represented in that category. There is no Frances McDormand, for example, uh, of No Man Land. So, yeah, I think you come away from that night, and I think a lot of actors and industry members are going to be very moved by that speech. 
people who hadn't maybe considered her in this category as a as a threat to win who liked that performance but maybe put on the back burner. Yeah. Yeah. And Nicole Kidman and Olivia Coleman and Penelope Cruz all have Oscars. So if you want to like spread the wealth, she like is her and Stewart. Uh, Richard, you reminded me of the existence of the 355, which I'm sure Jessica Chastain would rather us not bring up. But uh, she's in it with Penelope Cruz, which I had totally forgotten about. Um, <laughs> so we'll see how that helps either of them, tanks either of them. I don't know. Unclear how it plays yeah. into this. While we're on the topic of speeches that help campaigns, I thought Will Smith did a good job. Yes. You yeah. Know, after Great. an erratic interview cycle when King Richard was coming out <laughs> last fall and then a lot of radio silence <laughs> probably <laughs> imposed by um, people other than him. Th- that was a nice moment. He took a really great, you know, beat to to recognize the young actors who played, um, you know, his fictional daughters or well, the real life people. But like, it struck the right tone in the same way that Chastain did of that kind of coronation, like, I give you that like, this is, you know, I, I'm accepting the bigness of this and I'm not trying to be too humble about it, but also being gracious. And, you know, it, it felt like he gave enough reason to want to see some version of that again. Mm-hmm. Yeah. He was I great. Also, his shout out to Anjanu Ellis was really yeah. beautiful, I thought, and maybe would remind people how wonderful her work is in that film as well. And yeah, I think Will, you know, he would... Not that he needs it because he's the front runner, but he would benefit so much from having more of those opportunities to do those speeches because he is so gracious and charming when he's up on a stage like that. Yeah, I think when you've got someone who's as famous and successful as he is, like having he, he, to avoid the sense of like, don't you have enough already? Him spreading the wealth to his cast and to those young girls in particular, I think really helps him feel more emotional about it and makes you feel more warmly about it. Like, not like he doesn't deserve it on his own merits, but I think him as a representative of this broader cast makes it even more powerful emotional appeal. Definitely. Well, we mentioned this earlier um, in terms of the Best Picture race and Coda's... Um, yeah, I guess it was a surprising win. Like we had predicted Don't Look Up, which was, you know, basically a non-presence at this show. Um, Marley Matlin's like look of genuine shock was yet another huge thrill of the show. They gave this wonderful speech. Um, to me, it feels like an ideal ensemble winner, like that family unit. And, and Eugenio Derbez is also part of the included cast. He's I really like him in the movie, too. Um, but what do we make of, of the win in terms of momentum? Like is the Coda train just going to get moving faster and faster in the next month? I am... Reluctant to say it's in the top position at this point, but if you're looking for a strong challenger to the power of the dog, it does feel like that's starting to make the most sense. Belfast not winning the SAG Ensemble category isn't a huge shock. It was honestly probably my least likely (laughs) to win Mm. that category, Um, but it still would have cemented it as a serious best picture rival to the power of the dog. Because it is a, another kind of heartwarming, more intimate choice. Um, but the fact that they went with Coda, with actors that they don't know as well, um, like they did with Parasite a few years ago, tells you that there is real support behind the movie. Um, it's a, it's another one that, like Tammy Faye, kind of came and went in August, long time ago, and, and mm-hmm. we hadn't been able to gauge as effectively. But the evidence is very clear at this point that it's widely seen, widely liked, um, and I bet would do really well on a preferential ballot perhaps most importantly. Mm-hmm. And those are all ingredients for a Best Picture winner in the in the, this era. So, yeah, it's a real challenger, I think. Um, but I'm not... I, I still feel like it's a little small and a little, a little indie for what the Academy would go for this year. Um, so I've, I've got it at number two right now. Rebecca, how do you feel? 
I do feel like if it won, it would be an upset. Like it, it. I wouldn't yeah. ever say it's the front runner now, but I think there historically has been a pattern where SAG picks the film that then becomes the upset um, mm. at the Oscars. So I definitely see that that could happen, especially as you mentioned with the preferential ballot and with ten films this year. Um, you know, we can't really be a hundred percent confident in our predictions, or I can't, at least when it's a preferential ballot, um, because to me that does really change things. So I, I wouldn't say it's a front runner, but I do think it, it's, um, it has a momentum that could push it to the win. And we'll have to see, you know, what Apple can do in the next month as well to sort of continue to keep this momentum up. Um, I guess in terms of looking at the past of the SAG Ensemble category, it's like, is this a parasite or is this a hidden figures? You know, like, is this the beginning of something big or is this like, oh, we love this movie with the cast that we can really embrace, but the best picture. And because you think of the Oscars as going for scope so often or like huge directorial vision and not nothing against Sean Hader, the director of CODA, but like the the size of the undertaking of the power of the dog is so much bigger that it feels like that's what gives it the edge to us. But who knows? Yeah, we should also take into account that, like, Chastain's win, for example, might have just been the TikTokers of Aftra who liked her (laughs) They Call Me video. (laughs) You know, we don't know. It's true. Well, we got a listener question from Amelia about the pace of the show and the SAG Awards. And maybe we can talk about just how the show is structured, possibly as a way of getting into the big Oscar news from last week that we didn't get a chance to talk about because we recorded before it broke about them um, cutting eight crafts categories from the broadcast. Um, But to stick to SAG for a minute, it's a tight two hours. There's no host. There's not really any bits. There was like a tiny bit of montages and then they moved on. I was kind of, I've always been kind of amazed at the pace they managed to maintain at these things. And Richard, since you were watching at home with me, like how did it feel just as a as a show that they put on for uh, TV ratings? Well, <laughs> the irony is I just wrote something for the site about how like the Oscars should be free to fi- be long and all that stuff. But I liked how short the sags were, because they always are, you know. And my boyfriend was like, "Wait, that's it?" And I was like, "Yeah, that's the thing with the sags is they're really only two hours." You know, there were no bits. I mean, it was so just straightforward. Um, we got the in memoriam, of course, and, you know, a, a little bit up top, you know, w- with uh, the Hamilton guys. and But, like, I, you know, it 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 flowed well. The audio was a little off. Maybe that's because they were in a tent by the airport. But, yeah, it again, it, it felt as close to real, you know, pre-COVID kind of thing as possible. And, and the pacing certainly was part of that. It didn't feel like they were kind of, it wasn't janky because they were waiting for video feeds to sink in or whatever you know any of that stuff it was just like no everyone's here we're just going to keep things moving and uh yeah it was kind of over before uh i knew it how does it feel in the room with that kind of pace does it keep everybody's attention better i felt like the pace was really great and i i didn't i in my head i thought it was a three-hour show so when it ended i was like (laughs) wow this is a very quick show um so yeah it felt like there wasn't really a lag for me. I, I did feel like people would have loved more time during commercial breaks to run around and talk to each other. Mm, yeah. Um, but, you know, Michael that's... Keaton certainly would have. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> that's why you need those after parties. so Everyone can schmooze. It felt like we were running around and at a certain point we'd looked at each other and we're like, oh, it's about to end. Like mm-hmm. it, it, happened, it, it occurred very abruptly because they also structure it so, you know, it's not like the Golden Globes where they'll do like best television series and then best supporting actor in a movie. Like it's very, here are the drama awards, here are the comedy awards, and then, you know, they start with the supporting film awards. So it's, it's all very um, deliberate um, mm-hmm. and that can kind of take you aback when it's finally 
just lead acting categories left, for instance. So then here's the question. So we've got this news from last week that the Oscars are trying to cut categories. Do we feel like the Oscars should take a cue from SAG on some of this briskness and maybe therefore keep some of these categories in there? Or are they separate things and the Oscars should embrace? I, 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 like what you were saying, I enjoyed the, the speed of the SAGs while also defending a long Oscars. And I'm trying to, to rectify those two things within myself. Well, the speed of the SAGs is kind of necessary in that, like, you know, when you're cooking, you need to balance fat with acid, you know, and it, it like if it was four hours of just actors congratulating each other, that would be intolerable, <laughs> you know, but like because it's such a focused show in terms of what it's rewarding, it should be more streamlined in two hours. But I think the thing about the Oscars and, and you know, is particularly about these categories that they're going to kind of pre-tape and then show snippets of uh, in the main primetime broadcast is like the Academy Awards is about, well, not all, but a lot of component parts of making a film. And mm-hmm. and that's a different tone. That's a different intent. And um, that, I think, does need to feel, to be corny, as big as the movies they're rewarding, you know. Um, and, and so I think, yeah, they're two different animals, very much so. Um, and I think it's a nice balance to have a sleeker, shorter, uh, more narrowly focused award show and the big bloated uh, Bacchanal that should be uh, an Oscars. Rebecca, you were writing uh, last week's Awards Insider newsletter um, and talking about these category shifts and how there's been some pushback from some of the below-the-line people who were nominated. Um, like, I interviewed Jermaine Franco about Encanto, and that full interview will run later. But, you know, she said what's been a familiar thing, which is, like, I hope they rethink this. These people deserve their recognition. Um, what's the what's the sense of blowback on this category thing in particular and what might change? It does feel like it's it's not going away. I mean, we've seen a couple statements from some of the groups. I think the Composers um, Alliance released a statement recently, and and there just seems to be a a lot of frustration. But I think this decision may be final. Um, you know, I heard from a few people who said, "Why isn't anyone who's making these decisions, you know, talking publicly about it? Ex- you know, doing mm. some sort of press uh, to sort of explain their thinking?" Because it just feels like everything's sort of happening behind closed doors. Even for you know, a lot of these members of the academy feel that way. So um, I I don't know if the feeling is going to resolve before the show at this point. It, it does feel like the backlash is kind of disparate right now, at least among the industry, where you've had a couple uh, industry guilds not come out in support of the move, but say, we look forward to seeing what the Academy comes up with, um, which, to be fair, we really don't know exactly what the Academy's plan for this is. And there have been little tidbits. I think The Hollywood Reporter had some some details, um, none of which are particularly encouraging, mm-hmm. but it's, it's hard to know exactly how they plan to, as they say, completely honor each of these crafts while booting them from the live telecast. Um, It's just, it's hard to say. (laughs) I I sort of feel like the amount of backlash on just on social media uh, has hopefully reframed their way of thinking about how to do this um, Mm -hmm. at minimum, uh, assuming that they didn't have the most uh, elegant plan previously. There was a West Side Story clip that went very, very viral <laughs> on Twitter over the weekend. And Guillermo del Toro, who, and Rebecca and I have both interviewed him, he's among the most, he articulates and emphasizes 
every craft of making his every craft element of making his movies of making movies and how they all contribute to the whole so perfectly better than any other director I've interviewed. Um, and, and he used this clip to outline everything about it that was so brilliant. And you're kind of like, huh, where's he going with this? And, and at one point he goes, and I'll just read, this is why every craft in our discipline needs to be honored. A conductor can only deliver with a perfect string section or a perfect wind section. There are a few solos in our craft. And he said, screw the ratings and embrace the craft. <laughs> so... Mm. You know, we haven't heard a lot of big directors coming out with any kind of statement, I think, because, you know, they're nominated. It's it's a little bit, let's say, <laughs> shaky right now in terms of how what people can say, what people should say. Um, but that felt very pointed to me in a very clear way. Um, the movies that are honored are craft movies. They're movies with, you know, enormous um, value in cinematography and production design and going down to categories like original score and makeup, which are not being uh, on the live telecast as of now. And you have to wonder how far the Academy would take that because once they do make a decision that is not well received, not that there's no turning back, but it, it, I think it will leave a stain um, that won't go away even if they reverse it the next year. Because you think about who you're trying to please with with a decision like this, and I think kind of the most frustrated people are, you know, think that they're trying to target, like, people who watch the Super Bowl but aren't watching the Oscars and how many of those people actually exist that you're going to get. Um, but you're really pissing off a lot of the people who are actually going to be there in the room, and that's a, an interesting trade-off to make in the name of ratings, which I think anyone who's following TV trends over the last two decades is like, it's not going to get back to the Titanic numbers, so what are you actually going to gain by doing something like this? feels like a question of how you can best gin up interest um, in the Oscars going forward. I mean, I, I wasn't, we were in the room, but I, it felt like the SAG Awards were being talked about a lot on Twitter. And it seemed like a lot of individual winners were trending. And and there are new measures for how people are engaging and paying attention. And, and I don't know that the Oscars are necessarily meaning those so much as trying to fill in a bunch of broadcast blanks that may already be too far gone. Yeah. I'm Rachel Martin. You probably know how interview podcasts with famous people usually go. There's a host, a guest, and a light Q&A. But on Wildcard, we have ripped up the typical script. It's a new podcast from NPR where I invite actors, artists, and comedians to play a game using a special deck of cards to talk about some of life's biggest questions. Listen to Wildcard wherever you get your podcasts. Only from NPR. Okay, David, now let's hear your interview with Jesse Plemons, who was at the SAG Awards last night with Kirsten Dunst, who was nominated. He is Oscar nominated, and he's been a very um, low-key presence on the awards circuit or not at all existent. Uh, he's he's not given very many interviews about the power of the dog, which is one of many reasons we're so excited to have this. So what was it like finally getting to talk to him? He is the last Power of the Dog cast member for me to interview. <laughs> so that, that alone was a big deal for me. Um, You'll no, get Bronco a- Henry next season. <laughs> Uh, fingers crossed. No, he was <laughs> he was a total delight. He had one of my favorite hearing about my nomination stories I've heard in a while, which you will listen to. He, I think because he hasn't maybe talked to media as much about the performance, uh, it was really just interesting to hear him talk about working with Jane Campion and his partner, Kirsten Dunst. And um, we talked a little bit about what he's got coming up as well, including Martin Scorsese's next film. So uh, yeah, it was a really great conversation. Yeah, if Jesse Plumas doesn't win an Oscar this year, the odds of him winning one for Killers of the Flower Moon, uh, which is out soon, uh, seems very possible. So he's he's everywhere. Um, let's hear your conversation with Jesse Plumas. 
Well, congrats on your first nomination. Very deserved. Thank you. Thank you. Uh, Very well and unexpected. Yeah, Kirsten was the one who told you, right? I believe she described your reaction as shell shocked. <laughs> That's probably accurate. But it was just I was I was literally stepping out of the trailer to go rehearse this very intense scene in this um, mini series that I've been shooting for a while. And she FaceTimed me and the connection was bad. So I, you know, I couldn't make it out. Then she called me and was just screaming chaos in the background. And I made out, we both got nominated and it was, it was so not even a consideration. You know, I was just so excited for the day to come because I was like, all right, power of the dog should, should get in there and do well. Give Kirsten the nomination. And then, give her the award and <laughs> i yeah i i like i said i i didn't i didn't think about what it would even be like to both be nominated and kind of go off go through all of this together for the first time so it was very special and then yeah my my thought after that was i i can't suck in this scene that i'm about to shoot now and <laughs> i've got to figure out how to do this <laughs> having just uh, heard this information did you figure it out? <laughs> I did. Well, I got there and I wasn't going to like make an announcement. And so we rehearsed it once and I was like, all right, let's just, let's just shoot it. And then I told my makeup artist, Lana, cause I'd mentioned it earlier that they were coming out today and I told her. And then, you know, I was just trying desperately to focus. And I just happened to be working with my friend, uh, Brad Leland, who played Buddy Garrity on Friday oh, Night. yeah. I don't know, after 40 minutes or so, it was on his coverage, and the AD came in and made the announcement, and getting to see Brad's face, it was just been so supportive throughout, and, you know, always so sweet. Uh, that was really special, and I just remember him muttering to himself, it's like, I don't know how I'm going to do this. I was like, like, just don't be happy. Don't be happy. You know, so it was an intense interrogation scene where him and this other officer interrogating me over these crazy circumstances. Yeah. And I worked half a day and then was able to go home and celebrate with Kirsten and the kids and all that. I'm glad. Well, that's got to be a nice full circle moment with Brad though. That's pretty cool. It was so nice. Yeah. Well, so much of your work in this film is informed you, you and Kirsten's is informed by one another uh, and the rich scenes you get to play together. Can you talk about the significance of getting nominated from that perspective, just in terms of how you were able to work together and, and make something so special? Yeah, it, it it's hard to even put into words. And there was a moment early on in rehearsals where I got kind of nervous one, because I'm such a fan of her as, as an actor and and I had the thought, if only I actually worked together in this very specific Fargo world, you know. Right. Shit, I hope we I hope we have something else in us, you know. And and then we rehearsed the scene one time and I just felt like, ah, right, this is going to be <laughs> this aspect of it, you know, it's going to take some some work for sort of uh, you know, their specific behavior with one another and, and all of that, but you know, it, it felt it felt like we were sort of cheating in a way because we we had this 
this foundation, you know, all of those characters are very different, but to have that at the core did help greatly, you know, and it's just so much fun having, having your friend on set going through the same thing you're going through. Yeah. There was a moment when we filmed the scene on the Hill where, and it was, we were all kind of scrambling because Jane had very specific, had a very specific schedule for, you know, the lighting and we knew we were going to have to be on our toes and shoot it fairly quickly. But it was one of the most beautiful locations I had ever filmed in and such a beautiful scene. And it was kind of a pared down crew. And I did have a moment that day where I just thought, you know, how fortunate we were to, to get to sort of have this, not only creatively, but, for our kids down the line, you know, I'm sure they'll roll their eyes for a while. <laughs> but um, You'll get there. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I was going to ask you about that hill scene. Just, it, it looked to me, I was overwhelmed by the location and it just completely informs what an emotional moment it is between you. Can you talk to me about the filming of it and just like what it was like to be surrounded by that? Yeah. Um, I think it was sort of a, a field trip that was just Kirsten and I and kind of a pared down crew. It was this special trip to to go back to this location. And I think that was our first first time in a while being away from our son. So that was also just kind of kind of nice, you know, as as new parents. And this very steep, sort of treacherous gravel road to get up to the location. Part of it I had you know, we all we all uh, did some riding, you know, training, and I'd ridden up some of it, but never got to the top. Um, yeah, I just won't. I'll never forget getting up to the top. I mean, it seems like it seems like a screensaver, or it's like your your brain almost can't compute how how beautiful the landscape is. And talked to some about it. Benedict has too about just the landscape in general and how that that informed his character. And I, I feel like it, it did the same thing for George in a completely different way, just growing up in that sort of expanse. You know, it is so beautiful, but there's something that makes you feel very small in that too, you know. And and then playing this scene where he, like he's finally found someone, you know, I feel like there's souls connected and related very quickly and he's definitely for george maybe maybe it took a little longer for rose but it was just yeah it was very special you've described george as a a graceful punching bag which really says it all (laughs) um more broadly how how do you find your way into a character like that it was a long process and luckily jane gave us two three weeks before to to really play around and you know, uh, rehearse and improvise and, and sort of look at it from every angle. You know, in conversations with Jane, it was looking back through the book. But I think on the surface, especially after I'd read the book for the first time, I just had this feeling like there, there has to be more to George than what is even really in the book and in the script. Uh-huh. And I realized that 90% of the information you're getting about who George is, is all through 
the lens of Phil and his own, you know, projections and all of that. And early on, I think our first conversation, I, you know, I, I mentioned to her that I, that I, I wasn't interested in just playing someone that was one dimensional in that way where it was just, he's the guy that gets stepped on and stepped on and stepped on. And she referenced Robert Duvall in The Godfather and this sort of quiet power and grace while also, you know, he's, he's right in the center of all of it, but he's never, he's never a part of it. Yeah. And that really immediately snapped something into focus. And she also said, you know, yes, Phil is knocking him down repeatedly as he does everyone, but George really does what he wants. <laughs> and, <laughs> it's true. And that also, that also sort of helped me. And, 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 and then in working with Benedict in rehearsals and really trying to find our own history, you know, going back to the book over and over again, feel, figuring out what the dynamic was like with, with our parents, that informed so much of it. Um, you know, there was an improvis improvisation that, that happened maybe with two or, or so in rehearsals where we played out this scenario of 15-year-old George and Phil, in, in their room the night before he's supposed to leave for college. And I don't remember everything that was said or uncovered in that scene, but it, it not only sort of cleared their history up, but also it gave us, Benedict and Jesse, this sort of history uh -huh. that, that we had to, that, that was there, you know throughout yeah there were, there were several several things and then even as you as you are shooting it's sort of constantly changing um and that's that's the the fun part of it yeah i'm curious about uh if you had any unusual or distinct experiences with jane um her character work is really fascinating to me i know like she asked Kirsten to clean her home and she'd really get into it with Benedict. Uh, yeah. Was there anything that you, you had any kind of dynamic you had with her that was unique? Yeah. I mean, I've worked with a lot of uh, amazing directors, but I guess what I found unique about her was that she has the ability to really fully, and I, I don't quite know how she does it, fully place herself inside each character mm -hmm. and they, they all live within her and, you know, she is, she has very specific ideas, but then she also wants to be surprised and see what the actors bring. But I was, you know, there, there were times in rehearsals when she wanted to get play out some scenario with, um, with, uh, with our parents and she filled in as our mom. And I was just blown away at how, oh, how wow. good she was. As with a lot of very, talented people there's this push pull with everyone of having you know strong convictions or ideas as to what it is you know and then having enough i guess faith in the moment or, or, or the people involved to just sort of let that go and and see what happens and, and there, i think with each character there there was some of that with her where 
she had been living with this for such a long time that um, it was sort of having such a clear idea of, of what it was to her, but then also trying to relinquish control and, and be surprised. So I don't, I don't know if that fully answers your question, but it, it, it was an interesting dynamic because she's an interesting, crazy talented woman who's totally singular in the way she approaches things and what she makes, you know? So it was, um, yeah. Yeah. And we did, we, we had, we had disagreements from time to time about the character, about the history, or about the way I sort of looked at certain situations in the script. But she did always, she did always sort of release us to 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 go find it, you know. Yeah, which is what you want. Uh, well, let's talk about your very different dynamic. I imagine with Benedict. I know he was in character during the shoot and it's a, at times a very nasty character. Um, and, and I read that there was a moment he, he actually got under your skin, right? Yeah. You know, I mean, you do those interviews and that's one little piece that <laughs> well, it's like, Jesse was fixed. <laughs> <laughs> um, no, but I, I hadn't remembered that. And, and because George is, is so able to let, you know, especially, Phil calling and Fatso just roll off his back. It surprised me because, and you know, it was it was a tiny little moment, but yeah, he he was like, "How you doing, big boy?" And it's funny. I talked to my friend about this, and he has the same thing. You know, it's like weight has maybe fluctuated. Yeah, he's like that same thing when people call me big boy. I'm just like, ah, yeah. But it. You know, all of that stuff goes into the pot and and only benefits uh, right. film and, and, and the dynamics. So, yeah, it was a tiny moment. And then I remember telling Benedict and he he felt terrible about it. And I said, no, that was that was that was, <laughs> that was uh, what we were doing, you know. Right. So, yeah. But I've, I've said this before, but I, I think I think it in a lot of ways helped the entire process helped helped everyone by sort of isolating him in a way yeah there were many times where it was me and kirsten and cody hanging out and benedict was off whittling or or working out or <laughs> doing any number of things by by making that decision and starting on day one i think it just really sort of sped up the natural process that happens on a film where the character dynamics do more times than not kind of naturally emerge, you know, yeah. um, but that started it off right from the beginning. Hmm. Uh, we had um, four 2021 movies released, uh, obviously partly at the same time due to the pandemic, but uh, such different roles and types of movies between us. <laughs> yeah. Judas and the Black Messiah, Jungle Cruise, Antlers and Power of the Dog. Oh Yeah. That, those are four very different movies. <laughs> <laughs> Jungle Cruise and Power of the Dog are pretty similar. Uh, the, yeah, I mean, you're, yeah. you're making the exact same choices in both. <laughs> <laughs> you must like that, though. I mean, being able to to weave between different genres and, and roles, it, it, I imagine quite frequently. It seems like that's the that's the fun of it. You know, um, no matter what, each film is totally different, even if it's a similar part. The, there, there are different circumstances and 
challenges. But like I said, uh, you know, I'm always excited to really figure out what the director's vision is and what it what it is that my character serves in the in the larger picture and playing around it in that world. But um, the fun of it is is being able to to go to those extremes, you know. And you know, I, I I'm always trying to find the part that you know I feel like there's there's enough there that I that I can hold on to that I understand, but then th- there's plenty that I don't, and that that is a little intimidating and and sort of outside of, of anything that I've done before. And yeah, it's always so exciting when, when a director gives you the opportunity to do that. And yeah, Jungle Cruise was most definitely one of those moments. You know, our son was, I think, three weeks old. Our first son was three weeks old whenever I started filming that. Oh, wow. And I, I grew up watching Disney movies and the idea of playing a, a, a Disney villain was, was not something I ever... I ever like mapped out one day, but when the opportunity came, I just thought, man, that would be a lot of fun. And I don't know if, if I can do this. So I want to see, you know? Yeah. I love you in all these movies, but that might be my favorite performance of yours. <laughs> I mean, completely honest. Thanks. It was, it was so much fun. And yeah, that, that director, you know, for a film that was that massive, uh, yeah film he really encouraged everyone to to bring any idea to the table and it was it was much more um much more loose and experimental than than i would have ever thought and and creatively just a lot of fun you know mm-hmm. so so after power did you go into killers of the flower moon finished that and then and then we were home for many months and I knew Killers of the Flower Moon was coming and then I had my my friend Charlie McDowell call me with this idea and again it was like a, a, a role that I'd never played before this sort of awful tech CEO billionaire oh yeah I saw the trailer for that yeah <laughs> um, I hadn't worked in a long time and you know Charlie's my friend and you know, I've worked with Jason before. I love Jason and, um, and then Lily came on board. Um, and so that, that seemed like a great opportunity to just go play around before Killers of the Flower Moon. Um, so that was just like, a, 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 you know, we shot that in Ojai at Jason's house. And that was the first thing I did after Power of the Dog. And then, uh, and then had, three weeks or so in between maybe a month in between windfall and killers of the flower moon. So, so what can you tell me about it? Killers of flower moon? I know you've worked with uh, Scorsese before, but um, what was the experience like? It, it was, I mean, I had been living with, with this book, uh, you know, I think before, before power of the dog, we'd heard that there was going, there were a lot of roles in it. And yeah. There were going to be, some role in that for me. And so I immediately just poured into the book and was trying to figure out where I might fit in. Um, And it was just, I mean, a story that I couldn't stop talking about because it was, you know, much like uh, the Tulsa 
the Tulsa race massacre, it was just mind boggling that it wasn't more well known or like barely known at all and not taught in any school, even in Oklahoma, you know? Uh, yeah. And I had thought this was before it was released, but I was like, all right, I bet, I bet DiCaprio's playing Tom White. <laughs> yeah. Maybe I'm an FBI agent. Maybe I'm on the other, other side of the law, which uh, I was like, that's probably where I'll fall with these awful white guys. Um, and then, you know, after a funny turn of events, you know, I, I, my agent had heard that Leo had decided to, to play Ernest. And she, you know, the character of Tom White is written a little older than me. And my agent just said uh, to the casting director, she was like, Jesse, is it ageless or timeless? Something like that. It's like, yes. Yeah. And it at least opened, opened it up to them considering it, you know, and that was getting to play that part in that film with these people. This story was just something that, that sort of wildest dream scenario um, and shooting in the location where it all took place almost all of the extras are descendants of, of these of these characters um so it was just special and, and heavy in a way that i don't i don't know if i've ever experienced um yeah and and the the osage people were so so unbelievably welcoming and generous and and felt so it was it, it seemed like it was a i don't know a just the fact that the story was finally being told and it had been buried for all these years. It was, it was something that was so interesting and, and moving to watch this sort of catharsis that was happening and all of, all of them. There's a courtroom scene where something, something happens and it seems like Ernest is going to testify. Something happens. I don't want to give too much away, but in the shot, it was basically, all right, this is your opportunity to let it all out, all of all of the, the you know, hundred years of, of of rage and sorrow and all of it. And it was it was a moment I will, I will never forget seeing, you know, these these people that, that were that were extras and non-actors just I I'll never forget this 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 one guy who who had directed all of his rage to the boom operator <laughs> and it was just so, so powerful to watch, you know, and, and just, uh, I just feel so lucky to have been a part of it. You know? That does it for this week's show. We'll be back next week as uh, award season really continues rushing toward the finish line in this last month. Uh, in the meantime, you can find us at Vanity Fair, including David and Rebecca's really wonderful report about what you didn't see on TV at the SAG Awards and all of our other coverage. You can find us on Twitter at Little Gold Men and on our own. I'm at Katie Rich and Richard. Rylaws. And Rebecca. Rebecca M. Ford. And David. David Canfield, 97. You can also sign up to text with us at joinsubtext.com slash littlegoldmen or text 213-513-7118. We love your questions and comments all the time. This week's episode was edited and produced by Brett Fuchs, and this week's award for the best description of Lexi's play from Euphoria goes to Richard Lawson. Four hours of just actors 
congratulating each other. I'm David Remnick, host of the New Yorker Radio Hour. There's nothing like finding a story you can really sink into that lets you tune out the noise and focus on what matters. In print or here on the podcast, The New Yorker brings you thoughtfulness and depth and even humor that you can't find anywhere else. So please join me every week for The New Yorker Radio Hour, wherever you listen to podcasts.